27. Genesis 27 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to continue to worship the Lord <clears throat> through the preaching and the proclamation of His Word. So as you're making your way to Genesis 27, I want you to think for a moment uh, about a Shakespearean tragedy, right? The, the old playwright Shakespeare, and uh, he, he was well known for a variety of things, one of which uh, were his tragedies. Now, this probably is not going to surprise you, uh, but I have not been, nor even today am I much of a Shakespeare guy. Uh, but when I was in high school, uh, we had to read for one of our English lit classes, we had to read Romeo and Juliet. I had no exposure to Shakespeare. I was not familiar with the story. I didn't know how it turned out. And so when we got to the end, I loved it because I felt like for one of the first times that, that here are characters making dumb decisions and there were real consequences that accompanied their foolish decisions. Um, and you would have thought that I would have dove into more of Shakespeare, but it was that old English, I just couldn't do it, uh, so I didn't. But as you think about that, that really is the fitting introduction to where we're going to be in Genesis 27, because this text very much has a tragedy type feel to it. And while no one is going to die, there are threats of murder uh, that are going to come uh, at the end of this story. And yet, in spite of all of that, what this passage is going to serve to reveal is how God is going to fulfill His promise, even using the sinful defiance of His people, if necessary, in order to fulfill what He has promised. So here's what God's Word is going to lead us to this morning, this idea right here, that God fulfills His promised Word even when we attempt to circumvent it. God fulfills His promised word, even when you and I attempt to circumvent it. Now, now to best understand what's going on in chapter 27, we're, we're served well to just briefly look back at a few items that have come to us from chapters 25 and 26. Uh, if you remember in chapter 25, the prophecy that came to Rebecca was that the older brother was going to serve the younger brother. A few verses later, the favoritism of both Isaac and Rebecca is expressed in that Isaac favored Esau and his game, uh, but Jacob was a little bit more of a mama's boy, and that's who Rebecca favored. And then at the end of chapter 26, we're told that when Esau was 40, he took uh, a couple Hittite women to be his wife. And here's, here's the line right before where we're going to start, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. It sets the stage for the drama that's about to unfold in front of us this morning. And so because of the nature of this story and how it moves and how it flows, how we're going to approach this will be similar. But what, what, what's going to happen, maybe that's going to be a little bit distinct, is we've really simplified a lot of the notes and the slides. You're just not going to see very much of that this morning. We want to navigate the story. And where appropriate, we'll stop and we'll apply and, and, and we'll make connections to our life. But we just want to let the story emerge here this morning. So you're not going to see a whole lot with respect to the slides. But before we go any further, we would do well to pause, to pray, to commit ourselves to the Lord, uh, and then we'll get into this really riveting, if not disturbing story that's in front of us. Why don't you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for your word. God, how your word is, is genuine and real. Um, no, no one's getting airbrushed. No one's being um, 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 buttoned up or edited. God, we're just getting the raw, true story. Um, and yet, God, even in the midst of that, uh, there are going to be places of encouragement and reminders 
um, places of hope that, that we hold fast to. And so, God, we pray that as we walk our way through this passage, that you would help us to see and discern uh, what's happening in the text. Would you remind us uh, of the glorious Savior that we have in Jesus? Um, God, we will probably find ourselves on a number of occasions thankful that none of the people in this story are our Savior, because uh, otherwise we'd be in, in uh, phenomenal uh, despair. And yet we have a glorious Savior that is going to be pointed to from this text. We pray that you would help us to see him. Uh, Father, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area this morning. Uh, God, praying for Paragon and for Pastor Matt Sellers. Uh, I'm so thankful for that brother and friend. God, I pray that you'd be uh, moving and working in them uh, in the same way uh, that we desire that you would move and work in and amongst your people now. So God, would you have your way? We commit ourselves now uh, to you. We pray this uh, in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. All right, the title of the message this morning is A Stolen Blessing and a Promise Fulfilled, right? A Stolen Blessing and a Promise Fulfilled. The title gives us the, the nature of the duality of what's unfolding here, and again, this idea that God fulfills His promised word uh, even when we attempt to circumvent it. So even when you and I want to skirt or avoid or ignore what God has said, God's like, that's fine. I'm still going to do what I told you that I'm going to do. So with that in mind, let's get into the passage here. Uh, Genesis 27. Uh, here's the first scene, if you will, that emerges in verses 1 through 4, and it's an attempt to circumvent God's plan. This is an attempt to circumvent God's plan. Look at your Bibles. Here's what the Word of the Lord says. It says this, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see... He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I'm old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now you might look at that and be like, what? How is this an attempt to circumvent God's plan? Because this is an attempt to ignore what God has plainly and clearly stated. Isaac puts into motion this desire to bless Esau. And while old age has blurred his physical sight, what becomes apparent here in the text is that his favoritism has begun to blur his spiritual sight. See, he wants to bless Esau even though God's promise has clearly come to Jacob. And so, so it's important that we understand the distinction between a birthright and a blessing so that we understand all that's taking place here, right? The birthright was reserved for the eldest. Now, now the parents could bless any or all of their children, but, 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 but the, the greatest blessing was given to the one who possessed the birthright. And if you remember back in chapter 25, Esau sold his birthright. Uh, further, uh, what we have is that God had told us that the promise was going to come not through Esau, the older one, but through Jacob, the younger one. So this attempt to bless Esau is an attempt to subvert and to circumvent God's word. And it's worth noting, because it's not just true here in the text, this is true for all of us loved ones, that any attempt, listen to me, any attempt to ignore, to avoid to attempt to, to skirt around, to disregard, to circumvent God's word is a plan that will end in disaster. Did you hear that? And if you need examples, just go read the first 26 chapters in Genesis. There's no shortage of them that we've already seen. Simply put, if you attempt to deviate, disaster is going to follow. 
And so as we look at this, as we think about this, then the question is, okay, well, what's our response to this? And at a minimum, I would say that it's twofold. The first of all, you and I, as the people of God, should strive to adhere to all that God has said. Right? Isaac gets in trouble because he wants to deviate away from one of the things that God has said. But we as people should strive to adhere to everything that God has said. That we're going to believe his promises, that we're going to conduct our lives consistent with his commands, that, that we're going to be led by his word, not our desires or our preferences, that we're going to evaluate all things through the lens of scripture, that we strive to adhere to all that God has said. But then secondly, related to that, that we as people have to be people who are growing in our understanding of the Bible, that we want a deeper, stronger, more robust understanding of the Bible, what's happening in the Bible, what the Bible is communicating to, the, to us. And loved ones, that only happens if you and I are reading it regularly. No one grows in the Word by ignoring it or avoiding it. Like, have, you seen, have you seen any of these ads that have started to pop up for the Olympics? They'll have some American athlete jump out of a pool or off the track, and then there's some landmark in Paris because that's where the games are. Like, any, you seen any of those? If not, I'm the only one. Okay, maybe I'm the only one that's seen them. No one's raising their hands. All right, well, you'll see them soon enough, okay? But if you see those, here's my thought. They showed some swimmer jumping out of a pool and standing in front of the Eiffel Tower. And I just thought to myself, how ridiculous would it be if someone didn't train one bit for the Olympics and then they showed up and thought that they were going to win the whole thing? I mean, that'd be utterly foolish. And yet as believers, that's how you and I operate far too often, right? We don't open our Bibles. We don't read our Bibles. And yet we want to, we, we, we want to adhere and we want to grow. Can't happen if we're not in it. But here's what you got to ask yourself. Are you spending regular time in God's Word? Is God's Word altering your life, your thinking, your conduct, your outlook, is there any area in your life where you are passively or actively ignoring, avoiding, circumventing what God has said? And if so, be warned, be warned. Because the carnage that is to come is what comes to all who ignore or circumvent or avoid what God is saying. Any attempt to circumvent God's word will end in disaster. It may not be immediate, but it will be imminent. Disaster is unavoidable when defiance is present. And so church, I am pleading with you. I'm pleading with you right now. If, if there's some shortcut, if there's some bypass, if there's some decision that you're considering instead of God's way, don't do it. Don't do it. It's not worth it. You will regret it. Instead, let us be people who trust what God has said, and in due time, you and I will see the promise of God flower into its fullness. Isaac moves down a destructive path, and it is utterly devastating because he wants to circumvent God's plan and God's word. But see, he's not alone because his wife is complicit in a different way. Notice what we see starting in verse 5. This is an attempt to hijack God's plan. Right, so where, where, where Isaac wanted to circumvent God's plan, Rebekah now wants to hijack God's plan. Look at what it says, starting in verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the, 
before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. See, there's the trouble. Don't go obeying other people's voice. You adhere to the voice of God. Right? This is where this goes off the rails. Verse 9, go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. So Isaac wants to circumvent God's word. Rebecca here, she, she's just gonna, she's gonna hijack it. She overhears what's happening because the last time I checked, canvas walls of a tent don't exactly block out all sound, right? So she hears uh, what Isaac says to Esau, launches her own plan, and now we're back into what has become a recurring theme in the book of Genesis where someone is attempting to take matters into their own hands. Now, if we wanted to be people who gave just the total benefit of the doubt, we could say of Rebecca, she's trying to preserve the promise that was issued back in chapter 25. And at the surface, you could begin to argue that there's two problems with that. The first is that she, she's not trusting God. She's trusting her plan and herself. And, and secondly, the means by which she uses is not one of righteousness, it's wickedness. Right? She employs deceit. And so when we look at what Rebecca does, make note of two things here. First of all, this is a failure to trust God to accomplish his purpose or his promise. This is a failure to trust God to accomplish his promise. And, and the issue here, it wasn't that Rebecca had no other options. That there were a number of other options. She could have went and talked to Isaac. Hey, this is not the promise. She could have prayed and asked the Lord, God, what should I do? She could have just sent Jacob in without deceit and said, here the real son of the promise is here for, her, for his blessing. She had options. The issue is she, to- she chose to take matters into her own hands, revealing a lack of trust in God and as his purpose. And don't miss this, loved ones. Don't miss this, because the same is true for us. When you and I choose to take matters into our own hands, we are actively deciding that we trust our ways, our plans, and our thoughts above and beyond God's ways and his plans and his thoughts. We are choosing ourselves over the Lord. And what you and I need to remember as you think about that, you're like, man, that, that feels kind of stiff. Loved ones, the the whole of following Jesus is an exercise of faith. This is true throughout the entirety of the Christian life, that you and I exercise faith at salvation. We exercise faith in sanctification. We we exercise faith in being led through life. We're, we're, We're trusting what God allows. We're trusting what God doesn't allow. We're trusting God's timing. We're trusting his purposes. We're trusting what we can't see. All of that demands and requires faith. So Rebecca is not at all off the hook here. As you think about this, just just ask yourself, evaluate in your own life, is is there any decision, any relationship, any part of your spiritual life, any aspect or element of timing of when things are going to come about where you're failing to to trust God and you're wanting to take matters into your own hands? And as you think about that, let me just ask you this. How does it go when you take matters into your own hands? Like, how well does that work out for you? Because the fail rate in the Bible is only 100%. It's only every single time that it's like, oh, I I can do this better than God. And God's like, no, you can't. And it's proven. So even when it's bleak, 
We're best served to trust God in His Word and let Him direct us. Rebecca's failing to trust God. Let us, right, let us be people who trust God. Loved ones, hasn't God proven that He's worthy to be trusted? Hasn't He proven that? So trust Him and let Him prove Himself again and again. This is a failure to trust God to accomplish His his, uh, promise which then we see at the root of this is this wickedness. There's an evil, a sinfulness, because she, she employs deceit. Look at verse 11 and following. But Jacob said to Rebekah's mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Just a slight problem, right? Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son, only, here it is again, obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck, and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob." Off we go. Now, what, one of the things that I think is interesting, Jacob's only concern is not that this is morally or ethically problematic. His only concern is, I don't want to get caught and face the consequences. And if you think about his name, right, which implies cheating or scheming or supplanting, right, he is now revealing who he actually is. And he, here's the problem that emerges in Versus, well, there's a number of problems. Here's one of the problems. It's the idea that sin is somehow justified, that it's somehow tolerable if there is some good or expediency that is accomplished in the end. You ever heard the phrase that the end justifies the means? Right? You know, hey, as long as the outcome is good, you know, if it's a little questionable in the process, see, that's the type of approach that they take here. Now, listen, listen. The end never justifies the means when the means is sin. Did you hear that? The end never justifies the means when the means is sin. Loved ones, you and I got to think rightly about sin. Sin is what alienates you and I from God. Sin is what brought death into the world. It is utterly egregious before a holy and righteous God. It's not cute. It's not a pathway forward. It is evil. It is wicked. We got to see it rightly. So the the end never justifies the means when the means is sin. And further, when when you look at this situation, Rebecca is not stuck with the lesser of two evils. This is not comparable to the dilemma that we find, for example, in in Exodus one, where Pharaoh said, "I want you to murder all the Hebrew boys," and the midwives are like, "Hey, I can I can either murder or I can lie." Right? They're stuck between two evils. This is not, I'm stuck between two evils. Jacob and Rebecca had options. They chose to sin. And the trap, right, the trap that you and I can fall into if we're not careful, it's this, it's that expediency, it's that effectiveness, it's that results somehow justify sin in the process. And so listen to me, simply put, they don't. They don't. Right? And yet all of us, so you start thinking, you start thinking in your own life some of the ways that you may be tempted to justify or to rationalize or to accommodate sin. 
I'm, I'm going to cut an ethical corner. But I'm providing for my family. Right? The end result is good. No, no. Because there's wickedness in the process. It's compromise. I, I'm going to tell a lie. But, but, but it's to help this individual. A, a positive result comes from it. No, no. There's, there's sin in the process. Here's what we see so often in the church today. There's theological compromise. Because there's a hope for greater good. No, man, you invalidated that the moment you chose to compromise. There's a morally a, a lax approach, and I'm, I'm hoping for an opportunity. Listen, wrong is wrong regardless of what it produces. Wrong is wrong regardless of what it produces. So resulting good doesn't justify sin in the process. See, God cares about the entirety of the process, not just the end result. Griffith Thomas came across this great quote uh, from him in my study this week that I think just summarizes this so well. Here's what he says. He says, righteousness can never be laid aside even though our object is more righteousness. He's like, even if the desire is more righteousness, you can't forfeit righteousness in the process. He goes on, he says this, in personal life, home life, church life, in endeavors to win men to Christ, in missionary enterprise, in social improvement, and in everything connected with the welfare of humanity. Listen to what he says next. We must insist upon absolute righteousness, purity, and truth in our methods, or else we shall bring utter discredit on the cause of our master. All right, so let's be people who heed the warning. Let's be one who trusts God. Let's be people who are honest in all things. Right? God's going to accomplish his good purposes. So, so, so we can proceed in uh, fidelity, in integrity, in honesty. In fact, you, you want gospel witness? You want gospel witness in your neighborhood? You want gospel witness in your workplace? Be someone who's above reproach in all things and do it with joy. I promise you, you'll have gospel witness. There's compromise littered throughout here. It's an attempt to hijack God's plan. I'm going to take matters into my own hands because I don't trust the Lord. No surprise, it's about to implode, which then leads here to what really is the climax of the story. And you could capture what's going to go on in verses 18 to 29 under this heading right here, that God's plan will be fulfilled in spite of sinful motives. God's plan will be fulfilled in spite of sinful motives. Look at your Bibles. Here's what it says. So I went into his father and said, my father, and he said, here am I, who are you, my son? Right, already not sure. Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me, now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac, a little bit confused, right? So verse 20, but Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. He's like, I'm not fully convinced. And then he tells us why in just a moment. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Not a compliment to Esau when you're wearing goat skins and it's like, ah, oh, that's my boy, right? But that's, that's what's going on here, right? So, so it says, so he blessed him or sorry, verse 23, and he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, are you really my son Esau? He's still not fully convinced. And he answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. You almost wonder, did Isaac know 
Jacob's a schemer. He may try to do something. Right? That may have been in the back of his mind. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, now before I read this blessing, here's what I want you to have in your mind. Isaac thinks he's issuing this blessing to Esau, not to Jacob, which there's a few moments that will become incredibly profound with respect to that. Here's what he says. Here's the blessing. Sounds an awful lot like Genesis 12 getting restated. See, the smell of my son is, the, is as the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now this scene, this scene is utterly ridiculous. Right, here's Jacob getting coached up by his mom wearing animal skins, going in before his father, right? And of course, Isaac knows something's awry, something's off, but, but, but Jacob's kind of checking the boxes, um, and, and he can't discern it in, in, in his compromised uh, faculties in the moment. Jacob's lying through his teeth. The whole thing is nuts. And there's a principle that's going to get stated. It gets articulated later in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50, that really captures What's happening here? So in Genesis chapter 50, here's what Joseph tells his brothers at the end of their whole episode that really in so many ways um, captures what's happening in the back half of Genesis. Joseph says this, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. See, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. There's a lot of evil unfolding in these verses, and yet God sovereignly works in spite of all of it to accomplish his plan. Praise God for this, right? that God accomplishes purposes in spite of sinful moments. See, because loved ones, this, this is far from the only place that we see this in the Bible. In fact, I don't even think this is the best example of this that we find in the Bible, maybe not even the best example in the book of Genesis. And yet what all of these examples are going to help us to do is they help us to better understand maybe the most notable example of God's plan being fulfilled in spite of sinful motives, it's what happens when Jesus goes to the cross. Because nothing, nothing, nothing is more vile, is more twisted than the injustice of Christ's crucifixion. Yet it's that act, right, where, 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 where God sovereignly ordains and God sovereignly orchestrates his plan of salvation. Right? That salvation comes in spite of sinful motives. This is what Peter tells all the listeners at the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.23. He says, the plan ordained by God and yet carried out by the hands of lawless men. See, God's plan is going to be accomplished in spite of sinful motives. That's actually an incredible word of comfort and confidence. God's plan is not going to be deterred. No one can screw it up to include you and I. Right? God's not wrestling and striving with, with, with people like, well, I hope I can overcome it, and, and if you and I fail, uh, it's going to go sideways. No, God's going to do exactly what God has promised that he's going to do. And so we can rest in that. Because here, we find three lies and a blessing. Right? Three lies and a blessing. First lie comes in verse 19. Who are you, my son? I'm your firstborn Esau. Right? Jacob lies. And you wonder in that moment, 
when he's standing before his father, does his voice shake and quiver? Are his eyes darting around the room in apprehension? Or is he cold, calculated, and confident as he attempts to deceive his father? Now, we don't know, but what we do know is he's straight up lying. And it leads here to the second lie that we find in verse 20. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly? I mean, this is just slimy and gross. He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. It's just gross, isn't it? And he's using God as a prop. See, in deception, we become deceived into thinking that God somehow awards, endorses, or at a minimum, tolerates our sin. And in the process, we may end up actually using God as a prop to justify our wickedness. That's what Jacob's doing here. And it's sick. And yet, loved ones, if you and I aren't careful, we'll fall into this very same place. In fact, you, 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 you can hear it in what people say. If you pay attention to what people say, you can hear it. Think about phrases like this. Right? This, this is how we use God as a prop. Well, God wants me to be happy. Used to justify usually some type of insidious wickedness or immorality. Or phrases like, God told me or God said to me, as if your word now somehow supersedes God's word. Or, or, or phrases like, or God hasn't called me to, or God hasn't gifted me for. Here's where I get to deny the clear command that God gives to all of his people. And so use caution. You're not deceived into using God as a prop to somehow endorse your sin, because God ain't playing that game. And the third lie comes in verse 24, right? Esau's still not convinced are you really my son Esau? Like, are, are you sure? Like, are you sure you're Esau? I am. Jacob. Jacob is a deceiver, is he not? In fact, let me ask you this question. When you think about Jacob, who does he most resemble in the book of Genesis? I would argue in this moment who Jacob most resembles is the serpent. He looks most like the serpent. And yet, wait a second, this is the son of the promise. Like, like how can this be? Doesn't that feel inconsistent? In fact, when you get to Romans 9, Paul's going to quote Malachi 1, where God says, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Now, now sometimes we, we get a little bent out, like, Esau I hate. It's like, no, Esau's not the son of the promise. And that's not even the surprising part of what he's saying. When you read Genesis 27, what's shocking is that God could love Jacob. That's what's shocking. Like, how does God love him? How does God choose him? How is God using him? Right From the line of this deceiver is going to come one who's going to crush the head of the first deceiver. See, the line that will produce Jesus is littered with unsavory, unsavory and questionable characters, and Jacob headlines that list. Why? Because God's plan is going to be fulfilled in spite of sinful motives, God is using even Jacob. And loved ones, if that wasn't enough, I think there's a profound hope for all of us in this, and it's this. If Jacob can walk with God, there is hope for all of us. Jacob is the model disciple in that he's the worst. He is just the worst possible disciple, and yet he is going to walk 
intimately with God. That's what's available for us. And we're all going, praise God, there is hope for all of us. Because God's plan is going to be fulfilled in spite of sinful motives. And so you have three lies, and then you get this blessing. And so in spite of Isaac's attempt to circumvent God's word, in spite of uh, Rebekah attempting to hijack uh, God's plan, uh, in in spite of uh, Jacob's deception, God's blessing is going to fall onto the person that God intended for it to fall upon. Because again, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Praise God that he sovereignly orchestrates and oversees all things. All this treachery, all this deceit, the the conniving, the the subverting, and every character is guilty. God's promise gets delivered to God's man. And so look at this blessing and see the various aspects of God's promise that reemerge. Verse 27, see the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Right, this field that the Lord has blessed. See, the scent of the field points to the promise of the land that God is going to give to his people. Verse 28, may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. It's a reference to the abundant provision, the abundant blessing that's going to come from God to his people. And if you think back to Abraham, right, the promise to Abraham is that you are going to be blessed to be a blessing. Well, you can't be a blessing to others without first receiving the blessing from God. And that is what's in view here in verse 28. Jump down to verse 29. Let the peoples serve you and the nations bow down to you. Now, now as you think about this, again, Isaac's thinking this is Esau, not Jacob. So look at what he says next. Be Lord over your brothers. No, no, God God already told you what was going to happen with your boys. Why are you you trying to do something different? You be Lord over your brothers. He thinks he's telling this to Esau. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Ah, whoops. See, the promise of God gets accomplished through the person of God in spite of that person attempting to circumvent and to undermine and to subvert God's original word. See, don't miss this. Don't miss this. No one, no one, no one is capable of subverting God's promises and his word. Further, any attempt to do so may only serve to reinforce, strengthen, um, uh, and broaden the scope of God's promise. You want practical examples? Here's practical examples. How many many stories do we have of people who set out to disprove the Bible and end up repenting and trusting in Jesus by faith? Or or, or you think back to uh, one of my favorite examples is the 18th century uh, philosopher Voltaire who hated, hated Christianity, despised it, disdained it, spoke of its imminent demise. And long after he was dead and gone, you know what his home was being used for? It was being used to house Bibles, and the printing press that he owned was being used to print Bibles. God's got a biting sense of humor when he needs to, does he not? Right? You're not going to subvert God's promise. Oh, Isaac, you think you think Esau's going to be lord over his brothers? No, no, no. I already laid this out. This is how it's going to happen. It just serves to strengthen what God has said. And then finally, verse 29, the end of verse 29, cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. It's a reiteration of God's final word to Abraham there at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12. And in all of this, God's plan is going to be fulfilled in spite of sinful motives. Which brings us to the conclusion of this story. And as I said at the outset, it feels like a tragedy. uh, And truly, it is tragic. 
uh, in a number of ways because here's what the rest of chapter 27 bears out. It bears out the consequences of disregarding God's word, which are severe. Did you hear that? The consequences of disregarding God's word are severe. And we see it in each of the characters. So look at your Bibles. Let's just walk our way through this final section. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. And what's going on in his head? And you can almost see him in the kitchen whistling as he's preparing, all excited, right? This day that he's waited for, this blessing that's going to come. Of course, it's about to blow up in his face. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And you see the light start to come on in Isaac's head. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. He's like, yeah, we've done this already, right? Like, well, what's going on here? And it's in this moment that it clicks for Isaac. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then? Then hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. He's like, I can't undo that. It's true, it's legitimate, it's binding. I can't walk that one back. And Esau immediately moves into a lament. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully, and he's taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob, for he has cheated me these two times? He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Well, he didn't take your birthright. You sold it, knucklehead. Uh, let's, let's make sure we're getting the facts straight. But he's emotional. We'll give him a pass. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him lord over you. No, God made him lord over you. You just reinforced it. And all his brothers I've given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I've sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Now don't miss this. The fact that Isaac can't issue a single blessing to Esau speaks to the insidious nature of his motives. He intended to give everything to Esau and leave nothing for Jacob. And yet in reality, he's given everything to Jacob and left nothing for his favored son, Esau. And so he issues, not, not a blessing, this is almost like an anti-blessing, starting in verse 39. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven on high, right away from the signs of blessing and provision. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. There's almost this resignation now in Isaac. It's true, I know it. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. And here's the result of all this scheming. Now Esau hated Jacob because of his blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey uh, my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. I'm pretty sure he's not going to forget. Then I will send and bring you from there. 
Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? Here's the fascinating thing. Later in the book of Genesis, we don't see Rebecca's name mentioned again. It is likely part of her consequence in all of this is that she never sees her favorite son again, but likely dies while he's away. Then Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women, like the women that Esau has married. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Boy, isn't this a happer, chipper family? They got everything rolling for them. Not even close, right? So bitter. The splintered, fractured family. See, this right here, this is, this is the moment of reckoning. That's what this is. The entirety of the deception, the ramification of previous actions and decisions. Now they come to bear. What's fully in view now is the graphic reality of the wreckage that comes in defiance to God and his word and to his ways, right? They are utterly laid waste. You ever heard the phrase, you made your bed, now it's time to lie in it? It's time to lie in it, right? The spiritual version of that is choose to sin, choose to suffer. That's where they find themselves. And as you look at this, let me, let me just, two things I want to I wanna denote here. First of all, in verse 33, right, as the light bulb comes on for Isaac, he trembles very violently, right? He comes to realize what's happening. I mean, it's a visceral moment, but look at what he says at the end of verse 33. And I have blessed him, yes, and he shall be blessed. See, his plan has been upheld. God's plan has been preserved. But here's what's fascinating with, with respect to the New Testament. The New Testament authors in Hebrews chapter 11 says this. He says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. I don't think the future blessing is when he thought he was blessing Esau. I think verse 33 is the moment where by faith he's coming to realize this that there's a resignation in him that I cannot thwart the plan and the word and the decree of God. This is the moment of faith. And, and, and the, the wickedness of his action is proven in the fact that he left nothing for what he thought was Jacob, but in reality it was Esau. Right? The consequences of sin are severe and they're mounting. And what we're left with is this sad, heartbreaking picture of an utterly fractured and broken family. And so as we look at all of this, let me just leave us here with three uh, concluding thoughts that I think are helpful for us as we think about the totality of Genesis 27. Here they are. Number one, God will accomplish his purpose, so align yourself accordingly. See, God's going to accomplish his purpose so you might as well just align yourself with him. You can fight it or you can go with it. Uh, but in the end, what God wants, what God decrees is what's going to happen. So be very careful. Right? Be very careful that you're not attempting to avoid or circumvent or undermine what God's purpose is. If, if you're fighting God in some area, the proper response is to repent and to align yourself to him. If you're fighting God in salvation, maybe that's true of some of you in here. Or you've not given your life, you've not yielded yourself to Jesus, the proper response is to repent and to trust in Jesus by faith. God's going to do what he wants to do. It's just whether you're going to do it begrudgingly or willingly. God will accomplish his purpose, so align yourself accordingly. Secondly, we look at this passage. This demonstrates on repeat that we will reap what we sow. 
We're going to reap what we sow. Right? This episode is the culmination of sin, the favoritism, the deception, the ignoring God's word. It, it, it's dramatic, but it's not surprising. Right? We, we reap what we sow. So the question is, what are you sowing into your life? Are you cultivating and developing? And what are you pursuing that you're going to harvest later? Is it holiness? Is it righteousness? Is it a growing affection for Christ? Is it a desire to walk more closely and intimately with him? Or is what you're cultivating and developing and reaping, is it just a worldly, empty, shallow entity that's going to leave you with an empty crop? Loved one, don't be naive. What you cultivate today, you're going to live in tomorrow. We reap what we sow. And then thirdly, when you look at this passage, maybe you caught this, maybe you didn't. Did you notice there's one character who's notably absent in all of this? It would be the character. It would be God himself. And so I just wrote this down, that we are best served to pursue the person of God, not merely the blessing. See, what's so striking about this account is each individual, they sought, they desired, they pursued the blessing. But they never sought the Lord, and they never submitted themselves to the Lord. Tragically, they were all actually chasing after the wrong thing. It's like a little kid on Christmas, right, when they open a present, and they want to play with the wrapping paper or the box, but not the gift. You're like, what are you doing? Right, they're chasing the wrong thing. That, that's what they're doing here. They, they want all the bennies. They want all the perks. But they ignored the person. They ignored the actual blessing which is God himself. But they didn't want God. They wanted the things of God. By the way, it's a great word for all of us. Just ask yourself, is, is my attention, is my affection, is it toward the blessing or toward the giver of the blessing? But if God could give you everything that you wanted or himself, which would you choose? Loved ones, pursue the person, not the blessing. And yet, as we think about that, not only is there a practical element, I think there's a theological element. We'll close with this, that each character in this story would happily sacrifice and exploit other characters for their own well-being. They were all in for themselves. And yet, loved ones, what you and I have in Jesus is a Savior who's all in for our benefit and for our well-being. Right? Jesus sacrifices of himself for our benefit. See, in Jesus, you have one who foregoes his rights with the express intent of bringing salvation to those who don't deserve it, but through the grace and the mercy of God, become the recipients of it. And to that end, I'm going to close. I'm going to read here from 2 Corinthians, or not 2 Corinthians, uh, Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 through 11. So feel free to maybe even just close your minds or, or hear this even as a prayer of gratitude and thanks to our great and glorious God. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, yes, Lord Jesus, we...
are so thankful for your sacrifice on our behalf. Father, we are thankful for Christ who has died in our place, who gave of himself so that we could be rightly restored and reconciled to you, our Father. God, would you help us in spite of the wicked, insidious nature of, 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 of our plotting and scheming. God, in spite of the ways that we want to run ahead or we want to circumvent or we want to take things in our own hands, we want to do our own things, God, would you remind us you're going to accomplish. You're going to accomplish your purpose. You're going to, you're going to bring to fulfillment your promise. And so, God, instead, would we be people of, of character and integrity and righteousness and trust because we're holding fast and adhering to you, not to ourselves. God, would you make this true? We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen.